This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Aluma Trailers, Waltons, North Dakota Tourism, Onyx Hunt, Federal Ammunition, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. Today, I'm joined by Ted Cook, Executive Director of the North American Grouse Partnership. We'll discuss the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service listing of the lesser prairie chicken under the Endangered Species Act, what this means for the future of this bird and other upland game birds, and what can be done to save them. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton. As always, as our producer, Brandon, I was uh, listening back to the live episode that we recorded last week because when you're in the moment, you like sometimes I don't actually remember what we talk about. You know, there's a lot going on. Um, and Brandon, I forgot to tell everybody that you're the one that does all the work to make this happen. Um, so thank you, Brandon. Here's my a little late, but better than never. Shout out to you for pulling that all together. I don't know how you do all those live shows all the time. Any guesses to how many you've done now? Oh, hundreds, hundreds, Travis. But thank you very much for mentioning that. You didn't have to, but yeah, I've done a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we appreciate all of your hard work. As always, we're hoping to get out into the field. I see a date is circled on my calendar. You and I get to go hunting again. Um, but 15 days I from now. I know, I know, but I'm also leery about this because I think Scott is in charge again. Oh, well, I mean, whatever. He's the boss, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Your reaction is perfect. Oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe Tony Jones will take the reins or maybe I will. I don't know if I'm going to be in town enough to actually take the reins on this one, but I'm excited to get back out in the field with you again. The season is flying by. I was looking at a couple of photos uh, just the last couple of days. I haven't been hunting in, in almost a week now, and that seems crazy to me. Um, a lot of family things going on, but it's flying by this, the hunting season. It feels like it takes forever to get here. And then once it gets here, we just want it to slow down a little bit. Um, we have an interesting show today, and it's a topic that will or should be uh, should matter to everybody that listens to the show if you're an upland bird hunter. Whether you hunt for this bird or the birds that we are going to talk about today shouldn't matter, uh, but it's an important topic and we have to talk about it because it's a reality that we are facing here in North America. I'm going to read a message that Josh Tapman wrote on his Instagram page a couple of weeks ago. I was traveling. Um, I knew I wanted to have this conversation. I set up the conversation with our guests, but I, I saved, I did a screenshot of this Instagram message that Josh put on his stories. Um, it involves the breaking news of the listing of the lesser prairie chicken. And his message in response to it was this, lesser prairie chickens went from having a hunting season to a threatened and endangered listing in less than 10 years. This should be a wake-up call for sports people. Our native game species are disappearing while we pour our efforts into increasing hunter opportunity. We blindly trust state agencies to manage game populations. This is our future and our children's future. It's time for sports people to take a stand instead of just taking. When I read it, I was a little bit shook by it. Um, and I think that's a good thing because it makes me think as a hunter, yeah, I'm, I'm taking birds. I'm pulling the trigger. I'm, I'm eating the birds that, uh, harvest that we harvest out in the field. Um, what am I putting back? You know, that's, that's what it made me think. What am I putting back or giving back? How am I helping? Uh, this is a major issue. Uh, and what that's, statement that thought, you know, that stuck in my mind for a while. Um, 
It made me want to interview our guest today, uh, Ted Cook. Well, it, I think now is as good a time as any to welcome you to the show, Ted. Appreciate you making time for us today. Ted, what uh, is the North American Grouse Partnership and what is your role there? Well, uh, yeah, Travis and Brandon, thank you so much for having me, especially on such an important and urgent issue. So uh, I'm the executive director of the North American Grouse Partnership. And interestingly, uh, for your listeners, um, they should know that we were formed 22 years ago in the basement of the home of a man named Dr. Tom Cade. Dr. Cade, Way back when, uh, Professor of Ornithology at Cornell University formed uh, the Peregrine Fund to save peregrine falcons from extinction. Uh, He ended up starting the World Center for Birds of Prey in Boise, Idaho. And in 2000, uh, peregrine falcons were declared recovered and delisted under the Endangered Species Act, a real success story. The next morning, they formed the North American Grouse Partnership, he and his friends and colleagues, because they saw the writing on the wall for prairie grouse. All prairie grouse species, there used to be five, if you include the heath hen, which became extinct a century ago back east. That was the eastern prairie grouse. And then there's the greater and lesser prairie chickens, sharp-tailed grouse, and sage grouse. Those are the four that are left. And they saw these four declining and formed the North American Grouse Partnership to try to stop and reverse those declines. And that's what we're still working to try to achieve today. Hmm. How long have you been working there? Uh, two plus years, I think, two and a half years, three years. When, when somebody asks you, what do you do there? How do you respond to them? Uh, we are a science-based policy advocacy group. And so we actually have a council of scientists. We get information from them and other sources. I'm a retired, uh, federal scientist myself. And then we try to channel that information back to the right avenues to affect policy decisions, in most cases by government agencies, either state wildlife agencies or federal uh, wildlife or habitat agencies, including you know USDA Farm Bill programs. So we try to affect conservation through that avenue. Um, what did you do prior to working at the North American Grouse Partnership that led you into this role today? Well, uh, for 30, 30 years, I was a a federal endangered species biologist working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And for the last eight years of my career, I worked to try to conserve sage grouse and lesser prairie chickens specifically. Hmm. And when retirement came up, the president of the Grouse Partnership asked if I wanted to apply for the executive director job. And I said, no. And here I am. (laughs) (laughs) No turned into... Two and a half years now that you've been doing it. Well, that's right. It's a it's a passion. I mean, we we you know I, I'm a hunter, fisherman, you know, conservationist through and through, like all of your listeners. And you just can't leave this alone. I mean, it's critically important. I'm sure all your listeners right now are, you know, angry to hear we've just listed an upland bird species we used to hunt as an endangered species. That I mean, Josh nailed it. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that message just shook me. And I I mean, there's thousands of it's an unlimited number of messages that are scrolling across social media but that when when i read it i was like i mean this is our future and our children's future it's time for sports people to take a stand instead of just taking you know and and just reading that it how does that not affect you i mean yeah I, <clears throat> It just does. Obviously, you've dedicated a large majority of your life to these birds and other birds, but you're also a hunter. And that's the interesting thing. You know, there's a lot of bird organizations out there, um, you know, and I'm assuming that you work with them. Uh, Is there a partnership that you have with the like the Audubon Society or any of those other bird organizations that are non-hunting? So, uh, yes, but we're actually much more aligned with hunting organizations. For example, we're a member of the uh, American Wildlife Conservation Partnership, which is a consortium of uh, roughly 60 uh, hunting groups uh, nationwide. And uh, we align with them, uh, and and it it works very well for us. The Grouse Partnership, we include all 12 North American grouse species, but we really focus on the four prairie grouse in prairies and grasslands, and our interests overlap greatly with 
most of those 60 organ hunting organizations, and, and that's a very powerful group to be aligned with. There's bird advocacy groups like you know Audubon Society and others, and we we share their interests, we converse with them, but we really partner closely with hunting organizations. Do other organizations, we'll bring up the Audubon again, how do they view hunting in terms of, you know, the birds that they try to protect? You know, that's a great question and it varies over time. So a very when I was young and I knew I wanted to be a professional biologist, I, I started joining groups and I joined groups like Audubon Society and National Wildlife Federation. And I don't belong to those groups anymore because I didn't feel like they respected hunters' interests enough. Uh, but but it's more nuanced than that. In fact, National Wildlife Federation is great. I mean, they're all in on hunting and fishing these days, but they weren't back then. Uh, and Audubon Society has had a complicated relationship. I, I know they've regularly, well, periodically run articles touting the positive effects that hunting and angling groups can have on conservation, and yet they still get you know berated by a portion of their membership for supporting hunting and fishing. So... Uh, they're they're all good people, you know. I, I mean, like like all of us, right? There's there's folks on one extreme or the other. I, I would say a lot of these groups, uh, American Bird Conservancy, is pretty good about you know acknowledging the contributions that hunters make to conservation. And so the Grouse Partnership just chooses to work with everyone with whom we can work when we can. Hmm. Well, um, you and I talked briefly before we started recording here, and one thing that um, I think it's important for people to know when we talk about these kind of issues, we're all hunters. If you're listening to this podcast, I would say there's almost 100% certainty that you're a hunter. <laughs> and if you're a hunter, you realize that habitat is every the most important thing in hunting. It really is. Without it, you don't have the game that you want to pursue. So I, you know, a lot of times when these topics come up, we, we like to say, you know, talk about, well, habitat is important. Yeah. I, I think, I think Ted, we, you and I probably both agree here that we get that, you know, but it, it's how, the most important. Yeah. it is, it is. And yeah. that's, that's why these numbers are dropping. That's why the populations are hurting, but we have to understand the, the, the grand scope of what percentage of the population or habitat has been taken out prairies. You know, I think you have that information. So let's touch on that, but I don't think we need to talk to our listeners or hunters like they don't understand that habitat loss is the reason. I mean, they get it, but I want to, I want to try to wrap my head around what can we do, you know, as hunters, I think that could be our, the goal today for our conversation. Is that fair? Yeah, that sounds great. And, and Travis, I, I'm going to take a, a new tact. I've done many of these interviews lately, especially <clears throat> the last month or so with lesser prairie chickens being listed. But I'm going to take a new tap, tact with your listeners. I'm going to say the number one thing your listeners can do is to get pissed. And I, yeah. I, I mean, you, you can go to grousepartners.org and donate to the North American Grouse Partnership. I'm going to give some other ideas and options for advocating to your elected representatives and agency officials. But the bottom line is we need to get pissed. We need to take we, at some point, you know, this is insidious and it just keeps going and going. And we hear that your listeners hear this and they're driving along or wherever they are, they're working out or they're doing mm -hmm. their thing in the garage. And they say, oh, that was something should happen. And maybe I'll get on that website later or maybe I'll make send that email. Get pissed and take action. That's what your listeners need to do now. You mentioned the threats here. We all know it's habitat, and we all know that hunters, first and foremost, invest more in conservation, including habitat, than any other group of conservationists in North America. And we should be incredibly proud of that, and we cannot stop doing that. With grasslands specifically, I, I'm not sure if your listeners do know that grasslands are the most threatened habitat type on the continent there is no more habitat type that is more threatened than grasslands. And it's because we see it as flyover country or whatever, and we just don't pay attention. And by the way, grasslands are not just in the Midwest, they're all over. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition, the, uh, there's a recent uh, study completed, and the, the one group of birds that have declined more than any other group across the continent are grasslands birds. They've declined more than 40% over the last 50 years, and it reflects the fact that grasslands are the most threatened ecosystem. Now, 
I'll challenge your listeners with this question. What's the one group of birds that have not declined over that last 50 years? I don't know, Travis or Brandon, if you know the answer. The one, ask the question again. The, the, what's the one group of birds? Uh, so grassland birds have declined more than any other birds in any other habitat type. What's the habitat type where uh, birds have not declined over the last 50 years? Uh, the habitat type? Well, yeah. What kind of, what group of birds? It's, it's wetlands. It's waterfowl. Hmm. Waterfowl have not declined. And why is that? Because we made incredible, we first and foremost hunters through their duck stamp dollars have made mm-hmm. incredible, incredible investments in buying and conserving habitat. In addition, 30 years ago, we passed the North American Wetlands Conservation Act <clears throat> that really helped move the needle to protect wetlands and waterfowl. And because of that, that's the only group of birds on the continent that have not declined. And lastly, your listeners should know that just this year, for the first time, in Congress, a bill was introduced called the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. It's modeled after that North American Wetlands Conservation Act, and it's critical we get it passed. It's not going to happen this session, but we're going to have it reintroduced next year. And that's one of the things we're going to ask your listeners to do is to help ask your elected representatives to support passage of the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. Do you know when that goes back into the, uh, the process to pass again? Uh, no, uh, but just last week we had a, uh, a, a fly-in session. It was virtual, but we reached out to 37 different congressional representatives in the House and the Senate and advocated for them to support reintroduction next year and to pass it. And so uh, if any of you know, or, or better yet, even if you don't know your elected representative, right now, Google, you know, who's my elected representative, get their email address and office phone number, put it in your contacts so in the, in the future, it's super easy to send them <clears throat> emails or leave them messages about what you want and advocate for them to support the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. It's incredibly simple. It'll take you less than 10 minutes the first time and less than two minutes every time thereafter, thereafter to support conservation in this way. Yeah, and I've, I've worked with legislators in Minnesota where I live and um, my representatives before on issues that I felt really strongly. And it's I've, I've constantly heard back from them that, you know, they're glad that they have heard from me. They thank me for reaching out um, and giving them my opinion because there's a lot of times where um, they don't hear from people and then they don't know. I, I, I can't imagine that there's a legislator out there or somebody that isn't aware of the situation that wants to help. You know, I, I can't imagine them not wanting to do something to pass this. How did it not pass the first time? Well, Travis, you are so right. <laughs> and let me just say, again, make an appeal to your listeners. you got to get pissed. In this case, <laughs> yeah. pissed me taking the 10 minutes to find out who are your legislators, and I would say state and federal levels, and sending in, in the federal level, so you have one congressperson and two senators, find those three people, put them in your address book, and send all three an email. You can do it all at once. Say, hey, I want you to support the North American Grasslands Conservation Act uh, next year uh, in Congress. And the reason it didn't get passed this year is uh, we, we were late in the process getting it going, we tried to find, uh, it was introduced only by Democrats and only in the Senate. We tried to find a Republican co-sponsor, but because of uh, mid-year election cycle, we had a lot of interest from Republicans, but none of them wanted to stick their neck out and associate with a Democrat, which is a sad state of affairs. But I'll tell you, the 37 briefings we did last week, Travis, the majority of them were Republicans, and almost all of those 37 briefings went very positively. So this is something we can do next year. It is bipartisan. You're right. Everyone sees the threat and wants to address it. And I swear to you, you live in Minnesota. If if just 10 of your listeners in Minnesota did what I ask, find out who are your two senators and one representative, put them in your address book and send them an email advocating to pass the North American Grasslands Conservation Act, you, you would be, just like you said, Travis, you would be amazed at what a difference mm-hmm. it makes. You, they just don't hear from people, normal people like your listeners. I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna have that. I, I really do. I think there's enough passionate listeners right now that would make a note on their phone if they're driving or something in their calendar that said, "Remind me to send 
a letter or a message or an email to my representatives. And I think it, I think it'll happen. Let's, let's. A two sentence long email. That's all it takes. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Please support this. Yes. Walton's has been one of our best supporters and I'm forever grateful for that. Brett Walton and his boys and John Tremblay, the whole family there at Walton's, they work to provide everything that we need to prepare and process our wild game. And right now, I'm told if you order anything on their site, over 5,000 items, by the way, it ships the same day. Anything from seasonings and spices to stuffers and grinders, mixers, everything but the meat. They've got it. And right now, they've got it on sale, making it even better. If there's anything you might need for yourself or that hunter or angler in your life, odds are they've got it. Check out Waltons.com. The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I use it on every hunt, seriously, every hunt. Their app tells me everything I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that we can all legally hunt on. The app also shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land or federal lands or walk-in access properties. It's ideal for scouting before the hunt and during the hunt to help put together patterns. The app also has helpful features that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. And there's a timber cut layer to help you find the right forest habitat for rough grouse. If you hunt in North Dakota, there's even a layer that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the many tools Onyx apps give you. And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. Um, okay, let's let's do a little bit of a history dive here because um, the lesser prairie chicken was once a, a native bird species that flourished and maybe flourished as an understatement. Can you explain just how, how many of these birds once roamed our North America landscape? They, absolutely. I, millions, millions of lesser prairie chickens across uh, at least a, what is now a five-state region, right? Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, and Colorado, southeastern Colorado, eastern New Mexico, and then western, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. And so just imagine back in the day when Native Americans or early pioneers, you know, waded through this sea of grass, this endless sea of grass that was regularly maintained by fire and fed themselves on lesser prairie chickens, they never could have imagined the day that all of that would be left, left as little postage stamp parcels of prairie in an endangered species. Just just, just try to think about that scope and scale of change. It, it's, it's unbelievable to me. And as Josh said, you know, we, recently we were able to hunt these birds and today they're an endangered species and, and, and if we don't make major changes, they're going to go away. Now, now the good news is there's lots of land on it, and it's 95% private land. So we have no choice but to do our best to support private landowners with an interest in conservation. And it's a good, good news is most uh, private landowners are ranchers who want to conserve and who even want to keep chickens around as long as they're not you know, regulated to death under the Endangered Species Act, right? What, what is the current population of lesser prairie chicken right now in America? Well, it fluctuates significantly year to year, uh, but it's down to just a few thousand birds, maybe uh, 6,000 birds, maybe less. That's uh, it? Yeah, that's right. And in fact, in the southern part of the range, in some of the bad years, they may be down to less than a thousand birds. And, and, and that's a real problem for a species like a prairie grouse, be it lesser prairie chicken, sharpie, sage grouse, because they need a minimum population size to reproduce because they have the what are called leks. The males, most of your listeners know this probably, males come to the leks and display, females come in, breed, and go out and lay. 
and it's a hell of a dance. Of, I'm sorry, what's that? It's a hell of a dance. Oh God, yes. And you Google, you know, Lesser Prairie Chicken, Sage, all those prairie grass are incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the beauty is amazing, but but you need multiple lecks interconnected. So you need a substantial number of birds, you know, hundreds, many hundreds of birds, in order for this social dynamic to exist. And once you drop below that many hundreds of birds threshold, they, they can maintain themselves. And reintroduction of prairie grouse is notoriously extremely difficult. So we can't lose them. We can't. Hmm. What about greater prairie chicken? What What's their current population estimate at? Yeah, so so I don't know the numbers, but it's it it's many times more than lesser prairie chickens. Same thing with sharp-tailed grouse, uh, even sage grouse. There's a lot more than lesser prairie chickens, but 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 it's kind of uh, with, number one with all four remaining prairie grouse species, they are all in decline. Sage grouse are in precipitous decline, and are next after lesser prairie chickens as a candidate for listing under the Endangered Species Act. So we still have huntable populations of the other three. But even just this year in Idaho, where I live, the state significantly curtailed my opportunity to hunt sage grouse, not because hunters are a threat, as we all know, but because of continued habitat loss. And in, in sage grouse country, it's because of the threat of cheat grass. It's an invasive grass that leads to uh, more frequent fi- and extensive fire cycles that sagebrush can't withstand. And so we have to control see- cheat grass here in the West and sage grouse country. Is there any chance, uh, you know, talking about the sage grouse out there with the cheat grass, is there any chance that they can adapt? Uh, Excuse me. In the case of sage grouse, no. Sage grouse are a sage brush obligate. Sage brush, it looks like brush, you know, it can come in quick, Mm -hmm. but it's not. I mean, these are arid landscape, arid landscapes. And for a mature stand of sage brush to grow in, it takes decades Cheat grass have a fire cycle that can be as short as every 10 years. So once cheat grass infiltrates the understory, it becomes more flammable. And when fire inevitably comes, because it's a natural part of sagebrush ecosystems historically, but when there's cheat grass, it becomes unnatural because it burns more completely. The cheat grass are first to reestablish on the site. And so then it burns every 10 years thereafter instead of every 100 years like it used to. And, and, and without sagebrush, sage grouse cannot survive so what what can be done in places with cheat grass taking over like that i mean th- th- is there anything that can be done to stop it yes and so cooler more might more moist environments favor and it's not just the sagebrush but it's the bunch grasses that exist within the uh, the sagebrush stand and it helps to preclude cheat grass Soil, chronic soil disturbance, and specifically overgrazing historically, is the main cause of cheatgrass infiltration of sagebrush understories. And so ranchers, frankly, have been doing a great job in recent decades avoiding overgrazing, but we still have more work to do. And even where they've reduced grazing appropriately, that cheatgrass remains for a long time. And so then aggressive cheatgrass control following on the heels of ensuring uh, appropriate grazing is is the solution there. And then, and frankly, there are sites like on the Snake River Plain in southern Idaho that are lower elevation, drier, that are just never going to come back as, as sage grouse, particularly in the face of climate change. And so what we've got to do is uh, protect the core areas that are left by, you know, reducing soil disturbance, especially, you know, from overgrazing, and then uh, site-specifically treating cheat grass and suppressing fire. What was the hunting season for sage grouse in Idaho this year? Two days? Uh, well, actually, they went to a draw tag system. Mm. So uh, now it's like a big game hunt. And so I'm not even sure I didn't apply for a tag, sadly, because uh, I didn't, well, feel good about it. I'll say that. I, I mean, I, I shot sage grouse here just recently, in the recent years. But, but this year they went to this new tag system, and I didn't have the heart to apply for a tag, to be honest. Did you ever think that day would come? God, no. God, no. The first the first bird my yellow lab ever retrieved was a sage grouse. And it makes me <laughs> well up just thinking about this, Travis. The first birds she ever retrieved were sage grouse. She was a pup. She was eight months old. She wasn't even full grown. And she's <laughs> carrying back these seven pound cocks. It was just incredible. And, and here I am not even hunting sage grouse today. 
It hurts oh, my heart. Man. It hurts that, my heart. So somebody, let's say in Minnesota, listening, if I said, if you're listening here and they're, you know, you love to hunt for rough grouse and all of a sudden you cannot hunt for that bird. Just, <laughs> just imagine that. Just yeah. imagine. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's what we're living with here in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, I mean, do you really think now that this lesser prairie chicken has been listed, do you think that we will ever be able to hunt for them again in America? Yeah, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And here is why. Here's the hope. This is why your listeners need to get pissed, especially, uh, and you don't have to be from the southwestern Great Plains to, to influence, but uh, in fact, in Minnesota, uh, let's see, Senator uh, uh, Klobuchar, right, Yep, is uh, one of the key people that can influence this bill, uh, the, the Grasslands Act, which would directly impact lesser prairie chickens. But here's the story of hope that I want to tell your listeners, that the 80% of all remaining lesser prairie chickens occur on 30-year-old conservation reserve or CRP ground in western Kansas. So in other words, we've used farm bill programs before 30 years ago to conserve habitat in a way that has provided the last refu- best refugia for lesser prairie chickens. If we did it 30 years ago, surely we can do it again. And here's another call to action for your listeners who want to help lesser prairie chickens or native prairies in the southwestern Great Plains, and that is to advocate directly to the USDA agencies, Natural Resources Conservation Service and Farm Services agencies, to increase funding for their working lands for wildlife program. Recently, we've just learned the USDA agencies are proposing to cut funding for working lands for wildlife program, the Farm Bill Conservation Title Programs under under the Farm Bill. We cannot stand for this. This is exactly the wrong way to go at the wrong time, especially for grasslands. And so if uh, listeners want to reach out to their Natural Resources Conservation Service state conservationist or to the or to the Natural Resources Conservation Service chief, better yet, Terry Cosby is the chief of the NRCS, and advocate that we they increase funding for working lands for wildlife. Do you fear that sage grouse in America will soon follow the same path? Well, they are in the same. I don't fear it. I know it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I think I, the I, listing of it. I'm sorry. I think. Okay, I okay, clarify. yeah. The um, listing of this bird under the Endangered Species Act and then therefore eliminating a hunting season for them? Yeah, so uh, I guess it was at the Obama administration, right? First, you know, sounded the alarm and, and, and created this massive response to try to stop the decline of sage grouse. Um, the Trump administration. administration carried that through, but in a much diminished form, format, format. And now the, uh, who is he, Biden, <laughs> Biden administration is trying to ramp that up a little bit more. But through all of that and that massive investment up front under the Obama administration, uh, declines have been precipitous. 900,000 acres a year, I think, is what our federal researchers just recently said that we're losing of sage-grouse habitat. And so it's clear we're on a path to the to an Endangered Species Act listing and maybe even sooner than we thought. And that's why my message from here, from this day forward, Travis, you guys have inspired me, to your listeners is you got to get pissed. And in this case with sage grouse, I think you can reach out to the, uh, probably to the Department of the Interior, their Secretary of Interior, Deb Halland, or U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Agency Director, Martha Williams, and their emails are readily available uh, online, or ability to comment and, and beg of them to move the needle on sagebrush ecosystem conservation. Do whatever it is they need to do to make the investments to stop, not only stop the decline and prevent a listing, but to reverse the trend so we can continue to hunt them. It's not good enough to just save some remnant population that's protected as an endangered species. We want to be able to hunt sage grouse and hunt lesser prairie chickens. Yeah, and I think, you know, somebody that's that says... Wow, you want to save this bird so you can shoot it. <laughs> you know, like that doesn't make sense to a non-hunter. You know, how does a hunter educate them? I mean, what what 
tidbits can we give a hunter right now to be able to talk to a non-hunter to help them explain why hunting for a particular species matters? Yeah, that's well, and this is the age old question for hunters. Um, you know, Jose Ortega y Gasset, a famous philosopher, once said, I do not hunt to kill. I kill to have hunted. And I, everyone on your podcast knows what I'm talking about, right? I mean, you the, the process, the opportunity to be out in these ecosystems and habitats, the love and the reverence that we have in our hearts for the animals that we pursue and the honor it is to reduce them to possession and use their flesh to sustain ourselves and our family is it's it's so much more honorable honorable than plunking down 10 bucks for a steak at the grocery store and that's the hunters that's the story that hunters have and, and we put our money where our mouth is right uh, Pittman Robertson act dollars uh, Dingle Johnson uh, funding for, for fish conservation hunters and anglers spend more to conserve fish and wildlife in their habitats than any other group of conservationists in the, in the country and that's why it's important that we are uh, that we stay in the game and so we can continue to make those investments. Here's the deal. We list lesser prairie chickens, Pittman-Robertson Act dollars, excise taxes on hunting gear can no longer be spent on that species. Why? Because we can't hunt them. So state agencies can't spend that money to conserve anymore. That's a loss of conservation value when hunters mm. are cut out of the equation. I didn't realize that the dollars can no longer go towards protecting a species once there's not a hunting season on it. That's interesting. That's a yeah. I mean, it, that's, it's not a black and white thing, but but the fact is, hunters want hunters' dollars spent on species they can hunt. Right. And so, a state agency agency uh, leader has a pretty hard time spending hunters' dollars conserving an endangered species. Right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. yeah. It's, it's interesting. Oh, go ahead. Uh, just most of us don't realize that. You're absolutely right, Travis. Well, I, I'm a little bit encouraged that Hollywood is bringing in upland birds. I don't know. Do you watch the show Yellowstone by chance? You know, uh, so I lived and worked in the West, including Idaho, as an endangered species biologist. And I watched the first season and I couldn't watch it anymore because it just, I, I knew, <laughs> I, you, you know what I mean? It's like when you yes. see a bald eagle fly in the well, screen and they, they play the call of a red-tailed hawk and you slap your forehead and say, no, that's how yeah. I feel about Yellowstone. Well, it's it's one of those shows that my wife and I, we still, for whatever reason, sit down and, and we watch it each for our own reasons. But uh, it's sort of kind of this just somewhat entertaining uh, TV oh, show yeah. that, that sure still is, has yeah. us. But what I, the reason I bring it up <clears throat> recently here in the last week or two, the sage grouse has become a key part of the story. So, wow. Ted, you might have to get back into the show because, you know, this whole <laughs> land fight that they're in. And now that uh, John Dutton is governor, he has people working for him at the Capitol and they're trying to, you know, protect the land. And the sage grouse has become a key factor in it. And so when I now all of a sudden I'm like, I'm really watching because they're talking sage grouse. Never thought I would see it. But. I, I, I don't know what that does for the bird. I just think it's great um, that people that have no idea that this bird even exists that might be watching the show, obviously millions of people watch it, um, they might be tuned in a little bit to the reality of what's happening out there. Well, that's great to know. And uh, I, it's funny that you bring this up because uh, a while back, a friend of mine said, hey, Ted, you were on Yellowstone the other day, the show Yellowstone. I'm like, what do you mean? Because I... Back in the day, 30 years ago, I led wolf reintroduction in Idaho. And the guy said, well, they had this episode on wolf reintroduction. They had these federal biologists up there, you know, depicting you. <laughs> and so, I uh, yeah, I, I so don't know how, yeah, I, I don't know how factually accurate they are in all of it, but just no. the fact that their wildlife plays a, a key part in this TV show, I think, is a positive. So I'm going to call Absolutely. it Absolutely. No, I mean, most yeah. folks have never heard of the sage route. Hopefully they'll Google and see the dance, right? You talked about how spectacular they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, Google it if you haven't seen it. It's incredible. If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. 
Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. I love my dog, and like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year-round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good-for-life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand, and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog, Daisy. Nutrisource high-performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. Hunting season is here, and North Dakota is one of my favorite places to spend a fall day. That's because North Dakota is a bird hunting paradise. You can hunt both waterfowl and upland birds all in the same day, and North Dakota has approximately 700,000 acres of private land open to public walk-in hunting. This year, North Dakota has a population estimate of 3.4 million breeding ducks, which is 38% above the long-term average, and their prairie pothole region is smack dab in the middle of the central flyway. Their spring water index also came way up, over 600% from last year's drought. The habitat on the landscape looks great, and bird reports are strong throughout the state. With a little scouting, you just might find yourself in a field surrounded by wild flushing pheasants, sharp-tailed grouse, and Hungarian partridge. Plan a legendary bird hunt this fall in North Dakota at legendarynd.com. Well, we've talked about some negative things here. I'm not going to Maybe I shouldn't call them negative. The realities that we're facing as bird hunters in America and the birds on the landscape. What are some positives that you like to tell people about from your position, you know, in all these years that you've been working? What are some positive stories that we as hunters can say, yes, let's let's fist pump here? Yeah. So um, first of all, the greatest positive of all is awareness. You know, you mentioned the show Yellowstone. That's a that's a good thing. The greatest thing is when folks like us get out on the landscape and we bring our friends and family and our children and they have the enjoyment or at least some version of the enjoyment that we've had for our lifetimes. I mean, that there can be no greater positive than that. And let's not forget how lucky we Americans are that we have this opportunity because you live in almost any other country and there's not public lands like we have here and there's not public access to hunting like we have here. I mean, let, let's not, and most of us were born into this awesome heritage, this outdoor hunting heritage, and we don't even realize how incredibly unique and valuable it is. That's that's number one. Number two, all of the incredible uh, benefits, uh, let's see, incredible benefits, the incredible work that uh, all conservationists have done, hunters or not, but, but especially hunters on conservation and, and maintaining. I mean, you think of how after market hunting, you know, around the turn of the previous century, wiped out so many populations of elk and deer and turkeys and fish, and how abundant and widespread these animals are today, again, because of hunters, starting with President Theodore Roosevelt, and mm-hmm. going since then to you and me, right? And that, mm-hmm. that, that heritage of conservation is something to celebrate. And, and, but then more specifically, and we're talking about lesser brewery chickens, again, let's keep in mind that 30 years ago, a farm bill government program provided what today is the last best refugia for lesser prairie chickens. So we've already saved lesser prairie chickens once. Let's just do that again. We can do this. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is we have this awesome group of landowners that the North American Grouse Partnership has formed called the Lesser Prairie Chicken Landowner Alliance. And it's a group of longtime ranchers, usually multi-generational ranch families, who love ranching, love raising beef, they love prairies, and they love lesser prairie chickens. And we must empower them to be the voice for the remaining habitats because they own them. And we need to support them in their efforts to engage, particularly in the farm bill program, uh, farm bill programs to conserve those last remaining habitats. Those, that's my message. I imagine that you have a way for people to become members of your organization, similar to Pheasants Forever? Yes. Yeah, so go to grousepartners.org and 
Gotcha. I think, you know, with Christmas coming and people looking for gift ideas, um, here's just an idea. Maybe you can add memberships to organizations that fight on our behalf. Like I'm a member of Pheasants Forever. Uh, You know, maybe an idea for me would be to give my wife a membership, you know, Uh, give somebody else in your family a membership to an organization. They get the magazine that all of a sudden shows up and it might pique their interest a little bit. They might not be the key hunter in your family, but your kids, you know, maybe it's time to have them become members of an organization or Grouse Partners or Ducks Unlimited or Wild Turkey Fed. You know I mean? Just there are a lot of organizations working on our behalf. Uh, that could be a good gift idea. Uh, anything that you'd add to that, Ted? So Travis, hey man. And, and, and now let me say, Pheasants Forever is one of our most important partners, a group, very worthy of your support. And in fact, the Grouse Partnership and other native uh, bird groups are going to be at Pheasant Fest in February in Minneapolis, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, so hope to see all of you there. And we're going to have a, uh, we're working on creating a, a natives row where we have multiple native grouse groups in one row uh, there uh, for all of you to enjoy and learn more about and support. But I think you're absolutely right. You know, a gift membership to Pheasants Forever, North American Grouse Partnership, any of those groups, the groups that you love. There's some, actually in the upper Midwest, there's some pretty local groups that focus on sharp-tailed grouse, uh, things like that, and uh, mm-hmm. get involved. Uh, I won't say get pissed in this context, but, <laughs> but get yeah. involved. Act. <laughs> right. Take action. Well, you, yeah, yeah you, you've, you've done a good job of getting me excited. I hope that you've done a good job getting our listeners excited. Are you going to be at Pheasant Fest? Yeah, that's the, yeah. We'll have our booth there in the North American Grouse Partnership, and and this uh, natives row. You know, we'll have a row of mm-hmm. uh, native pheasant group or uh, native grouse groups representing. But I just meant, are you you going to be personally? There? Yes, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah, we'll be there as well. We are based out of Minnesota. This is our home. We are excited for uh, the show to return back to Minneapolis. It's always a really good turnout here. We've got a strong, strong. Uh, upland bird hunting community here in the upper midwest um you're out in idaho i i know you've been hunting do you have any favorite stories from this season that we can close today's show with yeah well right now actually uh uh, of note is uh i'm in a remote location in south central idaho uh in the albion mountains south of twin falls uh on a late mule deer bow hunt and uh, I'll, i'll tell you a quick story about my encounter yesterday morning if we have time yeah I, uh, so I was out, uh, and my buddy's hunted here before and he knows that it's a beautiful, incredibly, you know, beautiful area in my opinion. It's a sagebrush and, uh, juniper and aspen and the mule deer just love it. It's great winter age. It's kind of on a rain shadow side of the mountain range. And so, uh, we were out the other morning spotting groups of deer. We spotted this group of three bucks. Uh, all three of them were like big three by three muleys, you know? And so, uh, we spread out and we're, uh, waiting on either side, trying to figure out how to get close. The snow is a little crunchy. All of a sudden, I see a doe come up, more does. They're passing on me on the left. And uh, I, I had the good fortune of killing a, a cow elk with my bow in September. So I'm not, I got meat in the freezer. It wasn't too hard up. So I let the does pass, and I thought, this would be fun to see if a buck's following. It's a little late in the rut, but still some action. In fact, we saw two bucks fighting. And so the does pass by at 30 yards, you know, watch them go by, watch them go by. There's a gap. Here comes another doe right behind it's the buck, right? This big three-point. And they pass, uh, the doe passes behind, just gets behind a juniper tree and the buck right behind her. And I give the classic, and that buck stops and looks. I draw back and I shoot this recurve with big, slow, heavy arrows, right? So I draw back, boom, and man, the shot is perfect. That buck, like, looked at his watch and said, oh, I still have a half second. And then just turned and, you know, jumped backwards and I missed him by about, four feet because he jumped the screen <laughs> no. and, and, and then they just sauntered off yeah it was a it, it was such a cool encounter and uh and, and i could say i'm grateful for meeting the freezer already but it was a really really cool moment in about a foot of snow you know in the edge of the mountains and the sage and the, and the grass sands here and, oh, and that, just wonderful that part of idaho is one of the most beautiful places that i've ever hunted uh i i've as you were telling the story i would just like letting my mind take me back there, uh, the landscape and just that golden grass up there, which a lot of that cheat grass is beautiful actually to the eye, you know, when you're you know, up there, it, 
Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, the saddest part is you drive along, you know, an interstate, you know, lower elevation, you see all this golden grass, and you think, oh, that's so pretty. But it's insidious. Yeah, yeah. But the landscape out there is just beautiful. And I remember every time we would go over a different draw or, you know, over a ridge, there were mule deer that would get up. You know, we're looking for birds, but there were so many mule deer out there as well. And that's just oh, that's obviously cool. part of the the joys when anybody goes up on bird hunting is the other wildlife that you're going to see there. And they all, they all live together in there. Uh, any highlights from your bird hunting season this year? Uh, no, not yet. Um, I haven't been out much, sad to say, because I've been frankly uh, overrun by, you know, we knew this lesser bird chicken announcement was coming and then it came, and I've been uh, up to my eyeballs working, I'm sad to say. And believe me, my dog has given me the stink eye over that. <laughs> oh, no. Can I ask? I, I didn't want to go back into this topic, but since you brought it up, you said you knew it was coming. How long did you know, or how long ago did you know this was coming? Well, uh, so actually, chickens were listed under the Endangered Species Act in the early 20-teens, and uh, litigation by industry groups removed them from the Endangered Species Act on a technicality. Environmental groups petitioned to list uh, the species again. The Fish and Wildlife Service didn't act, so then they sued. Then the Fish and Wildlife Service acted, so they published a proposed rule in June of 2021 and then had 12 months to make a final rule. Well, in June of 2022, they did not act. They got sued again by the same environmental groups, and they finally acted here a couple of weeks ago. So. You know, this has been, it. my answer is we've known for anywhere from 10 years to, you know, a couple months that this is coming. Gotcha. There's nothing that you know that you can point to coming up that we would also get pissed about? <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, except if you read, you know, look up um, uh, U.S. Geological Survey uh, Sagebrush Ecosystem Report. That'll piss you off. It'll take a little reading, but the punchline is the dramatic rate of loss of sagebrush habitat. And it's, uh, again, it's, it, you know, you wake up and you think, oh, that's, you know, that's happening. I wish it wouldn't happen. I got to go clean out my garage. Well, you got to email your representatives uh, and, and ask them to take action first and then go clean out your garage. All right, Ted, thank you for giving us some of your time today. Get back out there. That buck is still waiting for you. And uh, I know you can make a good shot. All right. Thanks so much, Travis. Thank you. We'll be back. Great question. Thank you. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. Mm -hmm.